Church family, good morning, and if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, uh, my name is Randy, and we're just delighted uh, to get to worship with you here at Windsor Road. And um, our church's vision is being a life-changing community, passionately pursuing Christ. And if you're new here this morning, this is a good Sunday to be here because I want to talk about what that looks like. Um, We're going to begin a series this morning on a section of Scripture that really unpacks what we mean when we say that we're a life-changing community passionately pursuing Christ. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. That's on page 809 of your church Bibles. And uh, before I read our passage of Scripture here uh, in Matthew 5, 1 through 12, I want to tell you where these verses were first taught. This is a section of Scripture called the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes begin um, one of Jesus' most famous messages, the Sermon on the Mount. And this took place in the northern part of Israel. So here's a map of uh, Israel. And there are some main bodies of water to the left, the Mediterranean Sea. At the bottom of the screen, the Dead Sea. And then there's a little ribbon of a water called the Jordan River. And then up at the top is called the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee. And then uh, if you look at this topography, uh, topographical map here, you'll see that, uh, I mean, the Sea of Galilee is really like a bowl surrounded uh, by mountains, uh, small mountains, hillside. And so uh, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee uh, near Capernaum is uh, a place, and it's built there today, uh, the site of where it's believed that Jesus first taught this section of Scripture called the Sermon On the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount begins with Matthew 5 1 through 12, a section called the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are what we mean when we say that we are passionately pursuing Christ. So, with that, here is Matthew 5 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. And I love what some translations say. One translation puts it this way. And he took a deep breath and began to teach. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. Well, tonight is the Super Bowl, and when the players take the field for Super Bowl 50, not everybody is going to be happy about Super Bowl 50. And I'm not talking about the teams, I'm talking about Super Bowl 50, the logo. You know what, you know what all of the brouhaha is, don't you? Oh, you don't? Well, let me catch us up here. My goodness, this is important. It's the logo. To the chagrin of high school Latin students everywhere across the nation, the logo, Super Bowl 50, you know, it's now this year, it's in Arabic. And every other year, it's been in the classical, traditional Roman numerals. And, you know, that's just, oh, irritating. But you know why they change, don't you? You don't. Well, let me catch us up here because this is important, right? You know what the the Roman numeral 50 is, right? That's right. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not kidding. In an authoritative Wall Street Journal article titled, How the Super Bowl Ost a Etter. <laughs> I love my job. I get paid to read articles like this. Wow. I mean, I'm a rich man. Jamie Weston, who is the NFL's senior vice president for marketing, said, and I quote, You want it to be a strong identity, and the L just wasn't getting it there. For several months, we tried to make it work. And then there was also the matter of the obvious, which we have just alluded to. We were like, is everybody going to be doing this, you know? And so she lobbied NFL commissioner Roger Goodall, and he gave the nod, and they just chucked that L like an empty water bottle. Now, mercifully, Word from the corporate office is that next year's game will go back to L-I-51, you know. So all will be better later. But the graphics department is already scratching their heads about Super Bowl 88 because, I mean, how are you going to stitch that on a cap, right? So... (laughs) Well, it's, it's a fun article, um, but it says something about us as Americans, doesn't it? It says something about the extent to which we Americans will go to avoid looking like a loser because Americans hate losing. I mean, we're Americans, land of the free, home of the brave. And we like Super Bowl because we're a superpower, and we invented Superman, and we have a super lotto, and we have a supersized fries and soft drinks, and we like super. 
We love super. We not only like super, but we like strong. We like strong. According to 27 State of the Union addresses since 1983. I mean, strong shows up all over those speeches. Because we like being super, and we like being strong. And, and you know what? I kind of like that personally. I like that. I'm proud of that. I'm proud to be an American, you know? My family's been in this country for over 200 years. So there. <laughs> then we come here. We strong, super sturdy, stately, liberty-loving Americans, we come here and we gather for worship and we hear a you know, nice, warm, ministerial-looking guy standing up there who says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, Blessed are the meek. And we nod on the outside because we're not only Americans, we're Midwestern Americans and we're polite. And we nod on the outside, but on the inside we're thinking, poor in spirit? Blessed are the meek? That's not going to take home the Lombardi trophy, I'll tell you that right now. Mourn? One of those linemen mourn on the line of scrimmage, and they are going to get chewed up. Oh, yeah. So on the outside, we nod because we're in church, but on the inside, we're going, I don't buy it. I don't believe it. And truth be told, that nice ministerial warm guy up on stage, some days, some days he doesn't buy it either. What would make us buy it? What would make us believe what we just read here in Matthew 5, 1 through 12? What, what would make us Accept this to the core of our souls and say, no, this, this is not just truth. This is true truth. What, what would make us entrust our lives to the one who taught this? Well, that's what I want us to explore here uh, over the next several weeks between now and Easter Sunday in a season of the church calendar called Lent. The word Lent means spring. And just as Advent prepares us for Christmas, uh, the birth of Christ, Lent is a period of preparation for Easter weekend where we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so let's take this journey through the Beatitudes. And what I want to do this morning is I want to just give an overview of the Beatitudes and what they are uh, as a group. And then I want us to focus specifically on Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, blessed or in spirit. So the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, uh, I often have thought of the Beatitudes as kind of a 
list of how-tos in order to be a good Christian. And that really wasn't Jesus' intent. What Jesus' intent was is to cast a vision of life in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, the, the, the Beatitudes Jesus proclaimed as the culture of heaven. The Beatitudes is, is a picture of what our lives look like under the reign of Jesus, the King. And as such, it is not only a proclamation, but it's an invitation. It's an offer. It's a vision of what life looks like when Jesus is the King of your life. So it's like this. Uh, when I go to my workout class, just outside the exercise room, there are some, you know, there have been motivational and inspirational posters that offer a vision, you know, of the possibilities. And they're often portrayed by these chiseled athletes and really, really, uh, you know, motivate you and inspire you to. <laughs> what? What? Who did that? It's a vision of a preferred future. And that's really what's going on here in the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes is Jesus saying, this is life in my Father's kingdom. This is what's available in my Father's kingdom. This is why you were created. You were made to function this way. And here is what your life will look like when my life takes over your life. So the Beatitudes describe not eight different people, rather eight traits or markers or characteristic of one who belongs to Christ. And notice here that the Beatitudes begin and end with the phrase, kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is what kingdom people look like. And the specifics are unfolded in the Sermon on the Mount. But here, the Beatitudes constitute the preamble. And we see possibilities of life when God is king of our life. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will give us that section of scripture called the Lord's Prayer. And in Matthew 6.10, it says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the Beatitudes is what heaven looks like when it inhabits earth. It's what the culture of the new heavens and the new earth will one day be like. So Jesus says, Concerning his people, I want you to begin living now the way the culture is going to be forever and ever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth, you see. And as we do, as we cooperate with Christ and invite Christ to lead moment by moment, second by second, minute by minute, yielding to his leadership and following him from God's point of view, we are blessed. He declares us to be blessed. Which means congratulations. Beatitude, the Latin beatus, means blessed. Congratulations. Wonderful for you. How fortunate for you. How happy for you. 
And thus, beginning in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the most repeated word here in the Beatitudes is this word, blessed. And church family, you must know that this is God's posture to us. Christianity is not do more, try harder. Christianity is God saying to his people, I will bless you. I will bless you. Now let me show you a more authentic picture. Now, that little girl is blessed, and she hasn't done a thing, has she? See, she's blessed because she has a wonderful set of parents, loving father and mother, loving grandparents, and I'm telling you, this is so important because her perception of God is being shaped by her perception of her father and mother and her grandparents, you see. You see, it, 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 it happens. Our, our perception of who God is and his posture toward us is for good or bad shaped by our earthly parents. It just is. And what this little girl needs to know is that just as her mom and dad love her, and just as her grandfathers and grandmothers love her, she has a heavenly father. That's a, that love is a drop in the ocean compared to the love of, of God for her, you see. And you're that little girl in that picture. And some of us come into this room, just, we just kind of have carried this, this really mistaken idea that, you know, God's just irritated with us. Or he's annoyed with us. What now when we pray? Who taught you that? See, Jesus is saying that our Heavenly Father wants to bless us. And, and just as children and their parents have different definitions of what happiness is. <laughs> so often we do with God. Let's go with God's version of happiness, okay? Uh, happiness, especially for Americans, we often limit happiness to this euphoric sense of well-being, and we kind of make happiness an end in and of itself, and we make, when we make Euphoric happiness and end in and of itself, it always seems to elude us. But happiness as a byproduct of something else pursuing God, why, my goodness, it's there. And so what Jesus is talking about has to go beyond this euphoric sense of well-being. Otherwise, you know, verse 4 would not make sense, right? Blessed are those who mourn. How can that be if the euphoric sense of well-being, I mean, don't you see? So at its core, blessedness or happiness or beatitudeness is spiritual, theological. It has to do with God. God is the objective. It means to belong to God. It means to know God. It means to be God's possessions. The simplest 
definition of biblical blessedness is simply this. I will be your God and you will be my people. Revelation 21.3. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men and he will live among them and they shall be his people and God will be present with them and be their God. Blessedness. I belong to God and I am his possession. And, and right now there are false gods knocking on your door saying, I want to be your God. And I want you to be my people. False gods. And every false god, no matter what false god, you know how to tell the difference between a true god and a false god? Every false god says this, Randy, it's all about you. Every false god says that, no matter the false god. So you see, God is not the only one making you promises. The world has its own version of the Beatitudes. Someone has called it the Unbeatitudes, and they sound like this. Congratulations to the entitled, for they grab what they want. Congratulations to the carefree, for they shall be comfortable. Congratulations to the pushy, for they shall win. Congratulations to the greedy, for they shall climb the food chain. Congratulations to the vengeful, for they shall be feared. Congratulations to those who don't get caught, for they shall look good. Congratulations to the argumentative, for they shall get in the last word. Congratulations to the popular, for this world lies at their feet. The unbeatitudes. Don't you see, the gospel that Jesus offers is more than a list of handy tips for a happier life. Rather, Jesus is offering a vision of the life to come, a life that is truly life, life that is a blessing guaranteed by his death, burial, and resurrection. But you have to choose because there are other voices competing for your attention. Now, let me ask you this. Have you ever met one person who believed this world's unbeatitudes and came to the end a satisfied, radiant, wise person? Even one. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Which means what? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. <laughs> Jesus is not saying that the poor in spirit are fragile people. Jesus is not saying that the poor in spirit are scrawny or weak or timid or uncertain or nervous or depressed. He's not saying that the poor in spirit must subdue their personality. So if you're extroverted, you got to become introverted. And if you're introverted, you need to be more introverted. The poor in spirit aren't blessed because they're poor in spirit. As if Jesus was trying to tell us what a magnificent thing it is to be deprived of every spiritual accomplishment. What is poor in spirit? Here it is. Poor in spirit is a picture of your heart. It's a description of the state of your heart, the condition of your heart, the posture of your heart to God. So God has a posture to us and it is to bless us. What is our posture to him? 
And so you see, to be poor in spirit is not something to be fixed. We see the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. We got to fix that. Because <laughs> we're Americans, we like to fix things. Poor in the New Testament has two meanings. One word in the New Testament for poor means working poor. Paycheck to paycheck poor. One catastrophe from bankruptcy poor. Barely making it poor. That's meaning number one. Meaning number two is the catastrophe has happened poor. Upside down on income and expenses, poor. So poor I have to beg. So poor that I, and I can't work enough hours to feed my family or myself. And so I'm just bankrupt. Bankrupt poor. That's Matthew 5.3, the second meaning. The poor in spirit says with King David in Psalm 63.1, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The poor in spirit are Psalm 63.1, poor. And so to be poor in spirit means that I, I no longer rely upon myself. I, I, I can no longer rely upon my strengths, my abilities, my wit to make it through the harshness of life. To be poor in spirit means I can no longer rely upon the fact that I was reared in a privileged home, in a privileged nation, being of a privileged race, attending a privileged school. To be poor in spirit means I, I, I stop trying to justify myself. To be poor in spirit means I've fired my inner lawyer, the one who wants to rise in my defense and win every argument. To be poor in spirit means, God, I'm coming to you not because I need a boost. I'm bankrupt. I'm broke. I am destitute poor. I am, I don't have what it takes. Poor. I don't have the power to change. Poor. My problems are beyond me. Poor. And thus, God, I'm done with self. I'm done with my self-sufficiency, my self-praise, my self-justification, my self-righteousness. And in a strange mysterious, merciful, gracious way, Jesus says that in that state of spiritual bankruptcy, there's blessing. Jesus blesses those who come to him with a sensitive awareness of their spiritual bankruptcy. You have that? You feel that? Do you sense that? This, this sensitive awareness of our own spiritual bankruptcy? I don't know about you, but you know what keeps me from that? Five words. Five words. I can do it myself. I can do it myself. My greatest obstacle to spiritual poverty is self-sufficiency. And do you know what happens when we say to God, I can do it myself? You know what he does? He says, okay, 
<laughs> Go ahead. Thy will be done. Because he respects your freedom of choice. Thy will be, when God, the last thing you want God to say to you is, thy will be done. Because when he does, life happens. And life has a way of exposing our limits. Richard Rohr has written an excellent book on the Beatitudes. Uh, it's called Breathing Underwater. He wrote, until you bottom out and come to the limits of your own fuel supply, there's no reason for you to switch to a higher octane of fuel. Why would you? In fact, you will not even know there is a larger source until your own sources and resources fail you. Until and unless there is a person, a situation, an event, an idea, a conflict, or a relationship that you cannot manage, you will never find the true manager. So God, in his sovereign grace will make sure that several things come your way that you cannot manage on your own. And self-made people try to manufacture an even stronger self by sheer willpower in order to stay in control. But that game is unsustainable. It's unsustainable for the one who's trying to stay in control, and it's unsustainable for everybody else who has to pay for that person's aggression and self-assertion. And so Richard Rohr says, it is the imperial ego that has to go and only powerlessness can do the job correctly. And it's not just powerlessness. It's the sensitive awareness of our spiritual powerlessness. It's the sensitive awareness of our bankruptcy. It's the sensitive awareness of our inability. See, the fact of the matter is this. Everyone is powerless without God. Every, everyone is bankrupt and everyone is helpless before a holy God. But not everyone is blessed. Only those who are aware of it. And not just at conversion. Not just when I just became a Christian. No, no. My entire life in Christ consists of the sensitive awareness of my impoverished dependence on him. And I don't know about you, but in the kingdom of Randy, my awareness gets numbed. And you know what numbs my sensitive awareness? My own spiritual growth. You heard it right. Spiritual growth can be the greatest obstacle to spiritual growth. And we want you to grow. I want to grow. But the most menacing nemesis in my walk with God is my own spiritual growth. You see where I'm going with this, don't you? See, I grow a little bit, and then I think I've arrived. 
and I flex my spiritual muscles, and then some bizarre amnesia blocks out the spiritual poverty that drove me to God in the first place. And when that happens, something sinister attaches itself to the underbelly of my soul. I read my Bible, and I preach my sermon, and I pastor my church, and I give sacrificially to all in for two years, and I go to the DR, and I volunteer with Cradle to Career, and having done all of that, then this self-righteous voice whispers in my head, why aren't others doing as I am doing? And now you know why Jesus said what he said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. These were the guys who made it to the Super Bowl. Jesus, you must exceed them. How, How is that possible? It's not possible. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Someone once said, what separates us from God is not so much our sin, but our damnable good works. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those with a sensitive awareness of their spiritual bankruptcy. The poor in spirit will never, ever win a Super Bowl crown or a presidential election at that. But they will receive a better crown, the crown of life. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What? kingdom do you want most? See? So this week, one of you will be having a conversation with someone who's kind of cynical about faith and Christianity. And whoever that person is, that person who is cynical will kind of blurt out, well, isn't it true that Christianity is just a crutch? And you're going to want to know what to say. I'd like to suggest that you say this. Yes, it is. What's so bad about a crutch? What's so bad about a crutch? Why is a crutch good except for Christianity? And you know why. The cynic says that, don't you? Because in the cynic's heart, the cynic is saying, well, crutches are for cripples. And this is who we are. Nobody likes, the world does not like to admit that they're crippled. But we're here because isn't that true about us? That we need help. Jesus, be my crutch. Jesus, don't just be my crutch. Be my legs. Be my body. I need help. I'm spiritually impoverished. And in that 
confession, in that mindset, in that posture, God blesses us with his coming kingdom. And Jesus, Jesus not only taught spiritual bankruptcy, but he modeled it. The Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Same word as Matthew 5, 3. So that you by his poverty, same word as Matthew 5, 3, might become rich. Jesus says, admit your poverty. I'll be your last. I'll take the fall. I don't like to admit liability. Americans don't like to admit liability. Jesus says, admit your liability, and I'll, I'll take the fall. And that's what he did. He became poor. He stepped into my life. He stepped into my problems. He came and was put to death for my sins. He died in my kingdom so that I could live in his. And now I don't have to prove anything to anybody. I don't have to prove anything to our heavenly father. Jesus has done the proving. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's not only rescued me, but he's given me a new heart, a new desire, a new craving, a new thirst, a new identity. I'll say it again. Christianity is not about getting you into heaven after you die. It's about getting you into heaven before you die. And the Beatitudes are the kingdom of heaven now. Now. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> that's, what a, that's what a spiritually bankrupt church looks like. It's a church with a sensitive awareness that we can do nothing apart from God. It's a church that seeks and cries out to God for wisdom. It's a church, that's, it's a church where it's okay to be vulnerable. And it's okay to be transparent. And it's okay to be broken. And it's okay to admit your failures. And it's a church of unoffendable people. The fool shows his annoyance at once. But a wise person overlooks an offense. It's a church where the death of self is the order of the day. It's a church absent a sense of superiority. It's a church where we come together willing to serve, willing to pastor, willing to priest one another. It's a church where we ask God to use our sufferings to drive us to Christ, who in these beatitudes lived the cross. He was poor in spirit. It took him to the cross. He mourned at the cross. He was meek, a word that means power under control. He hungered and thirsted for the righteousness of his Father. He was merciful, asking God to forgive those who penned him to the tree. And in his sacrifice, he made peace. And now he invites us into his life, his kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What kingdom are you living for today?